My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of David Thorne. This case is filled with sex, secrets, and surprises. On April 1st, 1999, 26-year-old Yvonne Lane was found murdered in her home in Alliance, Ohio. The murder of a mother of five in her own home stunned the small town of Alliance, Ohio. She was discovered by her mother, who had arrived to take her six-year-old grandchild to kindergarten. The crime scene was brutal and bloody. And despite several people of interest, including members of law enforcement, police immediately homed in on Yvonne's former boyfriend, David Thorne. The father of one of the children. The motive? Child support. Thorne was ordered to pay. David had an alibi, but three months later, he was arrested with an alleged accomplice and charged with complicity to aggravated murder. Despite the alibi, no physical evidence linking David or his alleged accomplice to the scene, witness recampments, and new DNA evidence, David has been in prison for 21 years. A very serious question. Did the system convict the wrong man? So why is David still in prison? And who did kill Yvonne Lane? We'll get to that after this. I first came across David's case on the website Injustice Anywhere. It has since become a staple for my research into lesser-known cases, ones the Innocence Project usually doesn't have. David's case was on the homepage as one of their endorsed cases. I clicked on it, and I could not believe what I was seeing. How David's case was not a popular making-a-murder-type documentary or podcast was crazy to me. As one of the news clips you just heard explains, this case has everything. Sex, secrets, and surprises. I knew I had to talk to David. When we first spoke, it was back in February. And just a heads up, the location of the phones in David's prison is very loud, so sometimes he is hard to hear. So, so how are you doing today? Uh, not too bad. I was I was worried at first that we might have a fog count because it looked like it was trying to roll in, but the rain took it out the air. David explained a fog count is when they put everyone on lockdown to make sure prisoners don't escape in the fog when guards can't see the fence. So he was afraid he wouldn't be able to call at our scheduled time. All right. So you, how long do you have? You have 15 minutes? Yeah, I have 15 minutes and then I can call back. After the fog count, we 
pretty much got right to it. Not as much get to know each other as usual. We did that in later calls. David's case is so wild and convoluted. We both really wanted to get to the facts because I had a ton of questions. Warning, this case is even more complicated than others in this series. And this time around, I didn't have a lawyer I could talk to to help me parse through things because David doesn't have a lawyer anymore. He ran out of money in all of his first appeals. When I first spoke to David, he said his case is, quote, dead in the water. Almost half of his life in prison, and there seems to be no hope left. He needs a lawyer and an investigator to take his case pro bono if he has any chance of getting out. And that's proven difficult to find. David Thorne was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1972. Growing up, he said he was a happy kid, but as he got older, he realized his home wasn't what he called, quote, normal. His dad was in the military, he was a Marine, and completed several tours. But after getting out, David says civilian life just didn't suit him, so he re-enlisted. David said he later died by suicide, though for many years, David says his family told him he died in a car accident. David's mom was in a bad relationship, and it forced David to go live with his grandparents when he was six, who eventually raised him. And so from there, he said things were more usual. I guess it would be, uh, <laughs> I would assume that she would kind of consider it kind of boring. I didn't really do much, worked, kicked it with a couple of the friends that I had, and we had a pond. I used to fish, hunt. Before his arrest, David worked making decals for restored cars, things like lightning bolts or little stickers with warning signs. He was doing pretty well for himself and everything was on the right track. And then he got a surprise. David's former girlfriend, Yvonne Lane, reached out to him. They were not together anymore. David and Yvonne dated from 1995 to early 1996. And a few months after the breakup, she called with some news. She was pregnant. David says Yvonne often told boyfriends she was pregnant, so he says he didn't believe her at first. He was seeing someone, but did offer to help get her to doctor's appointments. And so months go by before he hears from her again. And then the baby is born, and she calls him. Actually, she called me, saying that the Children's Services was going to be getting in contact. She wanted David to take a DNA paternity test. But he knew the answer to the test before the blood was even drawn. I went over, I met her, I met him. And to be honest, upon seeing him, there was almost, there was no reason to even have the, uh, the DNA. From the moment he saw his son, Brandon, he knew he was his. I mean, he was mini-me. If you've seen him, yeah, if you've seen him at that time, that was, that was me at the same age. David did take a paternity test just to be sure, and as expected, Brandon was his. And with this new responsibility of fatherhood, Yvonne wanted David to pay child support, which he says he had no problem doing. He wanted to support his son and be a good dad. At this point, David was 24 and ready for the responsibility. He had the job, the stability, and was looking forward to raising Brandon. According to court records, David and Yvonne worked out an agreeable visitation schedule, and he and Brandon started to get to know each other. Tell me about that bond you guys had. Yeah, it was actually pretty instantaneous, because, I mean, as soon as I saw him, I mean, I recognized myself. You know, he was a little shy at first, but I'm a fairly outgoing person, so I didn't really 
let him just look at me. I just picked him up and kind of went from there. About two years later, by the time David was 26, he was taking Brandon on all kinds of adventures, to fish in his pond and hiking to show him wild animals. Brandon loved animals. David said because of this, Brandon also loved coming to his house because David raised exotic animals, including a baby cougar named Harley. David joked about how the guys inside call him the original Tiger King. From all accounts, David and Brandon's mother, Yvonne, had a good relationship, even if they were broken up and seeing other people. In fact, David says they were even talking about getting back together. You no, know, I had feelings for her. She's, she's the mother of my child, and I, I never not liked her. And, I mean, you know, I was, I was young, and like I said, she was pretty. We started talking and everything, and, and yeah, we started kind of a relationship behind the scenes because I was still dating somebody and so you know her and I became active again with each other her and I had kind of spitballed the idea about moving away because moving out west and or going to the Florida and potentially Atlanta but then about a year later everything turned upside down April 1st, 1999, Yvonne's mother, Tanya, arrived at Yvonne's house to take one of her grandchildren to kindergarten. Yvonne had five kids, including Brandon. The oldest was 10. When Tanya arrived, she found her 26-year-old daughter face down with her throat slit in a pool of blood. Not much is known about Yvonne. Her family won't talk to media, but David told me a little. He said he and Yvonne met in trade school. She was going to school for cosmetology, and David was in school for printing, what he eventually wound up doing with the decals. He had seen her around for years and said he was always struck by her looks. I mean, Yvonne is gorgeous, like a model gorgeous. She had a Kelly LeBrock from the 80s kind of feel about her with thick brown hair and pouty lips. And David said she was a good mother, too. According to police statements, recently, she mostly spent time at home raising her kids. Shortly after discovering her daughter, Tanya ran to a neighbor's to call 911. Police officers, neighbors, and family members crowded the crime scene shortly after. There was blood everywhere. The living room where her body was found looks like someone took buckets of blood and threw it around the room. Two fingerprints, cigarette butts, a pillow that the perpetrator wiped the bloody blade of the murder weapon on, a blanket from the victim's bed, and bloody footprints were collected from the crime scene. A large kitchen butcher knife matching Yvonne's set was also found with a print on it a few blocks away. There's a lot of talk these days about the CSI effect and how people have developed unrealistic expectations for cops to solve crimes based on impossibly tiny bits of evidence. And it's true. Those expectations aren't fair. But it is realistic to expect the police to protect their crime scenes, even back in 1999. That's not some new development. But that's not really what happened here. No one wore shoe coverings or gloves to preserve evidence. You can see this in crime scene photos on David's website. Investigators went back and forth, stepping over Yvonne's body when crossing the room. One bloody footprint actually looks like it came from a detective with his bare sneakers stepping between her legs. The children in the house were unharmed. The baby was in a crib in one room, and two of the kids were locked in a bedroom, and one child was found loose in the house. 
the fifth kid, did not live with Yvonne. He lived with her parents. When detectives went to remove the children from the house, they took a blanket from Yvonne's bedroom, covered her body with it, and carried the children over their dead mother. It was just a strange crime scene. Not only were there kids there, one running around, but outside on the deck, just past a huge pool of blood on the floor, there were a couple of puppies huddled together. Yvonne's dog had recently given birth. A neighbor walking by told police he saw a man leaving the house around 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, carrying a half-full garbage bag out of the house with him. The man he saw was in his 20s, about 180 pounds and about 5'9". When David got the news about Yvonne, he was at work. His grandfather called him. So I, I get to the phone and whenever I'm talking to him, he's, he's telling me that she's dead. So I'm, I'm trying to get him to explain to me what happened because I'm, I'm hearing the words that he's saying, but they're just not making sense. So, I mean, I just told my boss's son right there, I was like, you know, I, I got to go. And I'm, I'm half explaining what's going as I'm walking out the door. What were you thinking when all of this went down? Like, what was going through your head? I mean, I can't even. I mean, just like shock and awe. It's like as if it's not even real, like something has to be wrong. You know what I mean? It can't be true. And then the realization of it coming in that this had actually happened. I mean, I felt bad for the family and, of course, for my son. But then by the time they started talking to me, I'm going in to try to help them figure this out. And all of a sudden, they're telling me, you know, help us help you. From the beginning, police wanted David. They found him uncooperative when he had his first and only interview the day after Yvonne was found murdered. And they thought this was suspicious. It was because David's grandfather, whom, again, raised him and he was close with, hired David a lawyer. And that lawyer quickly shot a letter to the police forbidding them to talk to David without his presence. David insists he knew nothing about the lawyer, but either way, the police found this very suspicious. They're of the mentality, if you're innocent, why would you need a lawyer? But again, both of Yvonne's parents said David and Yvonne had a good relationship and didn't think he would hurt her. And David also had an alibi. He was in a martial arts class he took every week. But then police found 18-year-old Joe Wilkes. Did you guys know each other well? Yeah, no. I mean, I knew him, and I knew him for quite a while. I met him at parties, you know, through some mutual friends and everything. And he lived approximately one and a quarter miles away from me. I'd see him. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I'm driving into town. I'd see him walking, so I'd pick him up. I'd take him in to town. I've taken him to work, and he walked from his house to my house in the winter, and he was he was sleeping with my car outside because his mom had kicked him out, so I'd let him in. He'd sleep on the couch. So, I mean, it was just... He was a young kid that didn't really have many friends. You know, he was kind of the underdog, for the lack of a better word. And that's how him and I started to get cool. The prosecutor said that David hired Joe to kill Yvonne, and Joe confessed. He said David gave him $300 to kill her. 
And without physical evidence like fingerprints or DNA linking David and Joe to the scene, the prosecution's whole case hinged on Joe's confession. The jury believed him. After only three hours of deliberation, David was convicted on January 25th, 2000. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And this is where he's been for 21 years of his life. But he's not alone. I want to record the interview to use for the podcast. Is that okay? Okay, I have a bit of a head cold. I hope that doesn't ruin your... You sound wonderful. Not at all. Sue is David's longtime advocate and knows more about the case than anyone. I told her in an email she's a queen for sending me every document available in the case, including her own reports. She made a joke that I should mention that in the podcast. And now I have. Out of breath. I just walked up the stairs. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. I know I caught you early. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I just thought, I, I have David's dog, and I had to lock him in the cage or he'd be here. Woof, 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 Did he have him in prison? There was a prison program, uh-huh. and he's not allowed to be part of it because he's got a life without parole sentence. So he would just kind of buddy up to the guys who had dogs for the dog program so that he could hang out with the dogs. Wow, they don't let the guys who have life without parole do those programs? They can't take classes. They can't do anything. They said, why should we educate you? Why should we let you get a better life on the outside when you're done, when you're not going to be done? Today, Sue is more than just David's advocate. She's also his wife. They got married in 2008. She goes by Sue Gless Thorne now, but before she got involved in David's case, she was a family friend. I, I worked in the town that they lived in, and it was really small town and I worked at the post office where they got their mail and I saw David here and there I knew who he was I'd spoken to him a couple times I'd been to his sister's wedding so you know we had a very limited relationship because I I, you know I didn't run the same circles he did and uh, when his grandmother came in in uh, 1999 and she came in immediately and, and she was sobbing and she asked me if, I, if she could speak to me privately, and I, I went outside with her, and she told me, Yvonne's dead. And I said, well, who's Yvonne? And she said, that's Brandon's mother. And I went, holy crap. You know, I, how? And she said she was murdered, and I, I, I mean, you could have just knocked me over. I, I didn't know anybody that's ever been close to a murder case. So she said, David's on the way to the police department right now. She told me while she was at the post office. They want to have him t- give a statement, and he's going down to speak. And, um, I, and she said, my, my husband wants him to have a lawyer with him, but he said he doesn't need a lawyer because he didn't do anything. And so this is where the case against David starts to unfold. Avon had children with other men, but remember, David was recently contacted about Brandon and paying child support. So the likely go-to suspect would be an ex, especially one who needs to pay child support. But David said he was happy to pay, and he even had the money for it. Remember David's father died in the military? When that happened, David got his life insurance money. $135,000 was in an investment account. Sue says money was not an issue for David. David was renting his grandparents' basement and said that he was actually looking to buy their extra home off of them. At the time, he says he was making about $14 an hour at his decal job, which in 1999 was pretty good money. 
That's around $22 today. And since he worked on cars, he also went to swap meets and sold expensive parts for cash. One part, he says, could pay a month of child support, which was only around $350 a month, David told me. He could have paid off his entire 18 years of child support with a check. And that's no exaggeration. If the request was for $350 a month, as David says, do the math. And that equals around $76,000. David had almost double that in his investment account. And the police also talked to David's grandfather. You know, they'd ask questions like, did David have uh, money problems or something like that? They asked the grandfather. Well, the grandfather is all about preserving your wealth. He knew good and well that David had $135,000 in that investment account. But they told, he told the police he was broke because he didn't want them to take his money. Mm. So that's where they got that he didn't want to pay child support because he didn't have any money. Now, I'm sure David's grandfather was trying to help him, but wow, did that backfire. Now the police had motive. But remember, David had his alibi. They couldn't put David there because David was taking a martial arts class that night, like three, four counties away. Mm. And he did it every single Wednesday night. He had been for a couple months. And they knew where he was. He had a lion cub with him that night. And so it was memorable to the people that were in the class that David brought his lion cub with him. A lion cub, not a cub scout, as I originally thought, but an animal. Remember, David had exotic animals. So with the alibi, the police started questioning friends of David. Maybe there was an accomplice. He had an alibi, so they needed, they needed a co-conspirator. So they interviewed two of his other friends, the guy that was with him that night and another guy, and tried to get them to say that they did it. And they both went, yeah, that ain't happening. I had nothing to do with this. And uh, so they found Joe, and Joe was eager to please, and Joe just folded like a cheap chair. Remember Charles Erickson from an earlier episode? Joe was a bit like Charles. He was easily susceptible to police coercion. He had been um, raised by foster parents, and they immediately vacated when all this started. He's, He's had a terrible life. And he's very, he's the guy you go to if you want somebody to falsely confess to something because he, he wants to please you. He will, you know, he wants to make you happy because he'll, he just felt like there was no road out for him. So he'd take the best deal he could get for himself. The interrogating officers were Lloyd Sampson, William Mucklow, and John Leach. In Joe's interrogation in July, Three months after the murder, before recorders were turned on, the detectives told Joe that David was in the next room implicating him in the murder, which David was not. David only had that one interview months earlier. And once his grandpa got him the lawyer, he says police did not try to talk to him again. Before Joe made any recorded statements, they also presented him with supposed evidence nearly as soon as he entered the interrogation room. Besides telling Joe that David was pinning it on him, they showed Joe a Kmart receipt proving that Joe purchased a knife and gloves the day of the murder and a Comfort Inn receipt from the night of the murder, showing he stayed in town near the murder scene. None of this information was provided by Joe. It was provided by the police to Joe. And then they threatened him with the death penalty. They told him that they were going to light him up like the 4th of July if he didn't tell them what they wanted him to tell them. At least that's what Sue says anyway. For transparency's sake, I'll mention I couldn't find it in the documents I reviewed, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that if it did happen, no one wrote it down. What is documented, though, is that Joe says police offered him a deal, 
a lighter sentence if he testified against David. So Joe confessed. After that confession, the tape recorder was turned on. Today's date is July 14th, 1999. Wednesday, it's 13.09 hours. My name is Detective Bud Sampson. We're in the Ravenna Police Department interview room. Along with me is Detective William Mucklow and Detective John Leach of the Alliance Police Department. Also in the room is Joseph Isaac Wilkes. I couldn't read your writing. They started with how David enlisted Joe to commit the murder. Can you tell us your part in this? David, David He's always been talking to me like how much he wishes that woman was out of his life and that he could have his little boy. And then I, for years, I told him to keep me out of it. I want nothing to do with it. And then what woman was that, Joe? Yvonne Wayne. Okay. And then one day, I just lost everything and I didn't care about life no more. And David knew about it and he took advantage of me. Joe says that David asked him to kill Yvonne, and Joe agreed. Joe said he entered the house and yelled up the stairs for her. A side note, it's reported Yvonne rarely locked her doors, so Joe entering wouldn't be that weird. She was like, hey, what are you doing here? She goes, I haven't seen you in a long time. I was like, oh, David just wanted me to stop by and see how things were. And then we were sitting there talking for about three to five minutes, and then I... I did it. Okay. I know this is going to be hard, but we got to go through and you tell me what happened here. Where were you sitting? Were you sitting upstairs or downstairs? We were, we were on the second floor, not the third one. Okay. And we are sitting on the couch talking and I was stubborn. Okay. Did she get up and try to run? Yeah, she tried to run out the door. Which door did she try to run out? The big glass door the slides. Okay. And then <laughs> What Joe says is they were sitting on the couch and he reached his arm around her and slit her throat. And then she asked him why. He said because David wanted me to. Joe said he was given $300 to kill Yvonne. Sue and I talked about this. $300 seems like, you know, that just seems like a ridiculous amount of money to to say this person killed somebody over. Um, David had $135,000 in an investment account when this happened. Yeah. He's going to find the, the town clown. Yeah, I feel like, exactly. Bucks. David says that, yes, he gave Joe money but it was for Joe to buy a used car so David didn't have to keep driving him around. But it was David against Joe, and 
Joe, backing up all of the police evidence, he testified against David, taking a deal of 30 years instead of a potential death penalty. David was convicted on January 25th, 2000, and sentenced to life without parole. The guy I knew that came into the post office that threw up his hand and waved and grinned all the time, and he's just the nicest guy ever, I thought, no, this can't be. And to be clear, there were other witnesses who testified against David besides Joe, like a jailhouse informant who got a lighter sentence after. And if you remember from the Jamie Snow case, people who know about wrongful convictions know that plenty of prisoners will say what a prosecutor wants them to say if it means getting out early. It's one of the first things Bob Ruff, who hosts the podcast Truth and Justice, said he looks for when choosing his cases. And... I want to be as thorough as possible when recounting these cases, but I have to say, the amount of information in this one is overwhelming. I can't go into detail on each piece of evidence without making this its own series, which I'm going to admit I think it deserves. But know that David's website, wrongfulconvictionofdavidthorne.org or wcodt.org, lays out a lot more, including handwriting analysis, more recanted confessions, and evidence including a nationally renowned forensic expert who says the crime could not have happened the way Joe says. The bottom line is, the case is a mess But the evidence points away from David and Joe so much that at one point, even Robert Shapiro, one of O.J. Simpson's lawyers, was interested in getting involved. But that was connected to a TV show that never got picked up by a network, so it just never happened. I mean, even today, do you sometimes feel like this isn't real? Yeah, because this is a life with inside of a life. Because this is this is only existing. It's not really living. Sue told me, and I guess a lot of people don't realize, when you are a lifer, they don't really offer you programs. No, I can't take half of the programs that are even offered due to sheer time, and then the half that I am available for, I can't take until five years before parole. But being that they gave me life without, I'm not even... I can't even sign up for 90% of the stuff that they have here. The thinking is, why should we educate you and give you a better life when you're never getting out? Many prisons are like this, where lifers can't sign up for school. I talk to a lot of people about this. David says he'd love to learn business so he could have his own car business when he's out, but he can't. So he spends his time working, going to the gym, and playing a lot of handball. He's figured out other ways to educate himself, though, and the other guys that he's with. He's the president of the prison's cultural awareness program, where he and the guys go to the library, find interesting information, and come back and report it to the group. And they have fundraisers and donate the money to nonprofits. We've done everything from food shelters, battered women's shelters, all the way down to the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Children's Miracle Network. You name it. One of the organizations has probably donated to it. For years, David stayed positive. He still had hope in his case. Because just a year after he testified at trial, Joe recanted. Joe says in a sworn affidavit, quote, 
David did not ask me to kill Yvonne, and at no time did I discuss the murder with David. The statements I made against David Thorne, both before and during his trial, were based on information given to me by the detectives. I further testified that the detectives told me how I committed the crime. End quote. So let's break down the supposed evidence the police had, since that's really all that's left without Joe's confession. Joe told police he and David planned the murder over the phone. Joe had called David over a dozen times a week before the murder. But at trial, an Ameritech employee testified that it looked to him like all of the calls had been answered by an answering machine. Joe also has an alibi witness from that night that reached out to Sue years later when she saw something about Joe in the newspaper. She couldn't believe Joe was in prison when she knows she saw him acting normal and bloodless at the mall around the time of the murder. Next, the evidence at the crime scene does not match what Joe describes. Sue cannot make sense of it. I don't think it's possible to look at those crime scene photos and to listen to Joe's story and to make the two match. It is impossible. The The prosecution, the judge, anybody that saw those photos of the defense, they had to know that it was not factual. Joe's statement doesn't make sense. He's sitting next to her on the couch. He reaches around her and sticks a knife in her to the point where his arm had to be nine feet long to make it all the way around her neck to the spine. And this is hard to explain, but picture you're sitting next to someone on a couch. You have your arm over their shoulder, kind of like a high schooler on a date at the movies. Now picture a knife in the hand that's slung over the shoulder and imagine how that arm would have to maneuver to slice a throat from that angle. And this was no superficial cut. It reaches her spine. Her vocal cords were cut and she would not have been able to speak. In Joe's confession, he says she asked him why, but that was impossible. One expert now says blood patterns also do not match what Joe told detectives. In an interview from his home in Alaska, Brent Turvey, a nationally known criminal forensics expert, picked apart what he calls a botched case. I read Brent Turvey's reports, and he says Joe could not have cut Yvonne's neck on the couch. For one, where Joe was sitting is covered in blood, Sue recalls. Unless the blood transferred through his entire body, there is no way anybody was sitting in that spot. And this is what Turvey told Channel 5 News he believes happened and how the blood got on the couch. He says Yvonne was standing at the glass doors facing the puppies outside. The killer struck while the victim was standing here by the sliding glass doors, slicing from behind. She uh, begins to spurt blood, uh, uh, pumping blood in, uh, violently out of, her, out of her neck. The killer supported the victim on the way down then pulled her across the floor. And there's drag and and smear marks in the blood. She's being assisted from the uh, sliding glass door to the area between the couch and the television. During the time, blood was spraying everywhere. Even in Joe's version of events, he would have been covered in blood. But when the clothes he says he was wearing that night were recovered, there was not a drop of blood on them. There was something else that was odd about Joe's confession. He never mentioned the puppies. Remember how Yvonne's dog had recently given birth and the puppies were on her deck? That deck was right off the living room where Yvonne was killed. All that separated the crime scene from the puppies was a glass patio door smeared with blood. If Joe had sat with Yvonne on the couch for three to five minutes, as he told police, 
How could he have missed the puppies? Also, remember the receipts mentioned earlier, the ones from Kmart and the Comfort Inn that the police showed Joe? The validity of both receipts is in question. The signature on the receipts seems to be forged. And these receipts are huge because this is the purchase of the supposed murder weapon linking Joe to the weapon that they found. So let's say those receipts are fake as well. Joe did purchase a knife like the one police say he killed Yvonne with, but it was a month after the murder in May. And when a small pocket knife matching the description on the Kmart receipt was found and labeled as the murder weapon, it was only found after the police knew Joe did purchase a knife. Experts found no blood on the supposed murder weapon. Also, the description of the throat laceration was a gaping eight by four inches. Reaching the spine, and it's unlikely the tiny pocket knife made this cut. If it did it, it would have had to punch in so far that it would have been scraping handle. I mean, the blade was only 3.1 inches long. It's not going to reach to her spine and cut across in one smooth cut and make that giant hole because you're going to be handled deep in her neck. The kitchen knife would have been perfect. It's more likely the butcher knife that they found during the initial searches that matched the knife set in Yvonne's home was the murder weapon. The blade is about eight and three quarter inches. This is the knife that had the print on it, too. And the print, to this date, does not match Joe or David and is still unidentified. At trial... David's lawyer did not present a qualified expert to rebut state's evidence. In fact, even at the time, David felt like his counsel was inadequate. He says that he often smelt alcohol on defense attorney Jeffrey Hopped, and Hopped would often show up in the same clothes he had on the day before, as if he slept in them. Years after David's case, Hopped died outside of his home from hypothermia due to or as a consequence of acute alcohol intoxication. Again, there's a ton more evidence pointing away from Joe and David, including crime scene photos, all on David's website. So if David Thorne and Joe Wilkes didn't kill Yvonne Lane, who did? There are allegations that Yvonne was a sex worker. At the very least, there were many men in Yvonne's life she was seeing. According to the investigating officers, many of their own blue brothers were having relations with Yvonne, which I read in an interview they did with a psychic. Now, months in on a stuck case, the officers went to a psychic for help. And I've seen this before. It's not that unusual, to be honest. And so the officers recorded their interview, and I was able to read a transcript. The psychic told them it was someone on their force. In fact, she was fixated on why Yvonne knew and had relationships with so many police officers. The psychic believed Yvonne, quote, stepped on some toes and got involved in something big, like a cover-up. Quite a few officers were mentioned as suspects by the police in the transcript of the interaction. Yvonne's current boyfriend was also mentioned, but he was in jail at the time. And the psychic specifically said no to David Thorne as the killer. Detective Mucklow agreed. He said he didn't think it was David. 
I'm not going to get into any of the officers or the boyfriend here. I don't want to wrongly accuse someone, but I have no trouble saying that these guys seem to have just as much motive as cops prescribed to David. A three-year investigation on Channel 5 News did mention some of these men. I link to this report in the show notes. But what I do want to highlight, though, are two important witness statements pointing to the last known person to see Yvonne alive. The police don't seem to have investigated at all. And there is a guy that she used to hang out with, slide around the corner from her house, named Jim. And I interviewed Jim, and he was a interesting character. Jim lived directly behind Yvonne, and as Sue mentioned, Yvonne would often hang out with Jim. I'm not going to say his last name because he was only mentioned once in police reports and never as a suspect. Around 5.30 on the evening of Yvonne's death, a neighbor saw Jim at Yvonne's door. He was seen by a neighbor standing at her front door at 5.30, and the time of death is 7. She's got a bunch of cans, pop cans, dumped on the ground on her sidewalk right outside her door and she's smashing with her feet. And the neighbor saw her doing it. She never finished smashing them. They were still laying there when they found her body. Now, wouldn't you go finish that? He was standing outside her front door with her and he told them in a police handwritten note that it was, uh, he was there to see the puppies because he might want a puppy. Jim told officers he went to Avon's to see the puppies Avon's dog had just had. The puppies were on the deck, visible to anyone who could see the house. The neighbor saw Jim at Yvonne's door at 5.30, which he admits. The coroner said Yvonne was likely dead around 7 p.m., an hour and a half later. So if you're at the, at the door at 5.30, she's dead at 7. In that hour and a half, he had to see the puppies, have a conversation. You don't walk in and go, okay, there's puppies, bye. And remember I mentioned one of Yvonne's kids was found loose in the house? That kid was Vinny. He's autistic and at the time was a four-year-old boy. He had trouble communicating, but police believe he said he saw a Josh, Jeremy, or Jimmy push mommy down. The other interesting thing pointing to Jim, remember the other neighbor who saw a man coming out of the house with a half-bull trash bag around 9.30, 10 a.m.? This neighbor was shown photos of both David and Joe and said the man he saw was not either of them. He said the man was about 5'9". David and Joe are both over six feet tall. But the physical description he gave matches descriptions of Jim. This witness was never presented to the defense or asked to testify in court. Also, the guy coming out of the house in the morning carrying a half-full plastic bag went to the west side of the house and around the west side of the house. Well, when you go around the west side of her house, you're standing in Jim's yard. David and Sue both told me that Avon had told David that Jim would spy on her in the house with binoculars. David was there at times, and he was in the boys' room with her, and she said, that SOV, and he said, what's the matter? And he said, he's looking in my windows again. Wow, talking about Jim. Yeah, he got the impression it was from Jim's house. In the one report Jim is mentioned in, the police note he is friends with Yvonne and that they expect to follow up with him. As far as I can tell from reports, they never did. So Sue took it upon herself to follow up. Sometime after David's conviction in 2000, she knocked on Jim's door. I asked him if he, if he was involved, and he said no. He seemed like a nice enough guy, but he was definitely an odd duck, I mean, with the shoes. Sue said he seemed very distracted. He had like 30 pairs of shoes lined up on his wall in his front room. And the whole time I was there, he kept jumping up and going, straightening up a shoe. He goes sit down, 
Jeff, I'm going to straighten up the shoe. I didn't know what to make of that. It seemed like an OCD thing where he kept going and straightening like one shoe. He told her that the night of March 31st, he worked from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. This gave him plenty of time if the murder was committed around 7 p.m. to get to work. And then after work at 6 a.m., go back to the house, which again, his yard touched, clean up and be the man seen leaving the house at 9.30 a.m. with a half full trash bag. So again, Jim placed himself at Yvonne's house at 5.30 p.m. the night of the murder. When asked what he did after he was seen there with the cans, he said he went on a bike ride, something that's just impossible to verify. By trial, police had stopped following up on Jim, the last known person to see Yvonne alive. He was not called to testify or listed in police interviews. Sue's private detective said Jim's brother-in-law is a police officer who was at the scene the day of the murder. I can't confirm that the officer mentioned was definitely on scene that day, but I did find that he indeed is married to a woman who shares a maiden name with a Jim in question. People just don't care for some reason. They just, they've written him off. They don't care. And he's such a nice man. It's just, he's changed the lives of so many men in prison just by being their friend. Absolutely. Yeah, he was ecstatic when I wrote. I think he responded like almost immediately. Um, yeah. So. He said, I didn't want to seem overeager. No, like, I, you couldn't. David also writes to Brandon, his son. And Brandon told me in messages that he believes beyond a doubt his father is innocent. Today, David says they have as much of a relationship as they can. Yeah, he comes down a couple times a year. Uh, he works at a uh, small uh, mom and pa store. So tell me about that. I mean, his mother was murdered and his father is incarcerated for it. Yeah, it's been, it's been hard on him because, you know, he's lost twice as much. So in terms of your case, I mean, where where is it at right now? Yeah, as far as the appeals go, we're pretty much dead in the water. We need new evidence. To this day, nothing has been DNA tested. And this is trickier than in other cases because it really needs to be Joe who pushes for it. Remember, it's Joe's DNA that would be at the crime scene, not David's. And Joe has made it clear he doesn't want to get involved any further. So Sue and David want to fight for DNA testing in hopes that it uncovers new evidence because that's their best shot at winning an appeal. But as I mentioned, David doesn't have a lawyer anymore and ran out of money in all of his first appeals. So David is desperately hoping for someone with a heart to come on and take the case pro bono. And, and that's and that's been a battle in itself because nobody wants to do anything without money. And then even whenever they say they're going to do something, then they usually don't follow through with it because, you know, a lesson that I've learned the hard way is out of sight, out of mind. If you want to help David, go to wcodt.org or the wrongful conviction of davidthorn.org, where you can find a fundraiser to help raise money for a legal team and other ways to help. Again, David does not have a legal team, and that is pretty important to securing his release. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. 
For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.